Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. I rain down hellfire on people who try to go around and take my deals. Like I don't screw around. I go absolutely nuclear. Uh, I, I would call them and I would tell them literally if they don't back off immediately, then I will never sell them a property. Never. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate you guys being here. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you and have you experience what we do here. If you are a returning listener, thank you for coming back. Your loyalty is very appreciated. I cannot tell you how much it means to me. I have another fantastic replay of my Wednesday Facebook Q&A where we answer questions from you guys, and it is a blast. You should go check it out live every Wednesday at 7 p.m., Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on Just Start Real Estate page on Facebook. Uh, we had a good one this time. We talked about selling your rentals with the tenant still in it and what that looks like. Uh, what comes first, the deal or the money? Should you go find the deal and the money will come? Do you line up the money first and then go find deals? Uh, we had a conversation about that, which was interesting. Uh, giving your tenant power, letting them go and get work done and then just bill you for it once they had it done, as long as you approve of it. Uh, what I thought of that, and you might be surprised, and how to handle daisy chainers. If you don't know what a daisy chainer is, they're awful creatures uh, of the night that we do not like. And uh, check out this episode uh, toward the end. We talk about that. So hope you enjoy this one, guys. Buckle up. It's a good one. And here we go with Wednesday's Q&A replay. Okay, we're live. Welcome back, guys. I appreciate you being here. Uh, I am Mike Simmons. I'm a real estate investor from Michigan. And uh, this is my Q&A. We do this every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific time. And I do this to answer your questions. And I get a lot of questions throughout the week. And I, I can't answer, I don't really have the ability to answer all of them in a timely fashion. And I get bombarded with them sometimes, to be honest. So uh, I do this every week so that I can be here and I can answer questions for you. I can be at your service if you want to log on. And hopefully you do log on to these. Ask questions live. We can have a little interaction because a lot of times when you guys send me questions and I, and I answer them in this format, I have follow-up questions. And if I have a follow-up question, I can't, I can't really ask it because you're not here. So if you're here asking questions, we can really dig in, we can get into it. We can talk about um, your question in a little bit more depth so you can get a, a really good quality answer from me. 
But to that end, if you are interested in working with me directly, if you've been watching these or submitting questions and, and having me answer them for you, or maybe you just stumbled upon me and you want this year, 2022, as we're recording this, uh, it's still January. If you want this year to be the year that you finally make something happen in your real estate business, you finally get the momentum and get the traction that you've been trying to get and not really having a lot of success, or maybe you have gotten some traction, but you're struggling to figure out how to take your business to the next level and beyond and make real money and do it profitably and making sure that you're not just building a business that's going to collapse on itself or uh, maybe even worse, a business that takes you from a nine to five job and, and sticks you in a situation where now your business requires you know 18 hours a day from you and you have really less time than you had when you work for somebody else. None of those things are a good scenario. I have been on both sides of that. I work in a, in a corporate setting worked my butt off for somebody else. I made pretty good money, but uh, for as hard as I was working, I should have been a millionaire 10 times over. You know, I'm sure you guys can relate to that. And uh, I started in real estate and it took me a little longer to get my feet under me and figure things out than it should have because I didn't ask for help. I tried to do it on my own. And honestly, I truly believe this. If you try to do this business or any business really on your own, no help, no mentors, no coaching, no nothing, it's difficult too impossible to, to really, really make big strides and get where you want to go. Maybe over the course of several, several years, you can maybe figure it out and, and get a little bit lucky. Um, but business and success leave clues and, and clues are exactly what it sounds like. They're there for you to try to figure out. And if you try to figure it out on your own, it can be very frustrating, very long road. You can waste a lot of money, waste a lot of time. But with the help of someone who's been there and kind of forged through that path already, uh, they can help you. And that's what I'm here to do. And this is a long way of saying, I have created something for you guys. I've created for something uh, for the investor who's frustrated and wants to scale and wants to be profitable and wants to pull themselves out of their business so they're not spending all of their time on this hamster wheel and it's called uh, seven figure investor. And so if you go to seven figure investor and that's the word seven, not the, the number, the word seven figureinvestor.com, you can go and check that out. You can sign up. It's starting very, very soon guys. And I have poured a lot of uh, time, love, energy, blood, sweat, tears, everything. It's all in there. And, and it's there for you to take advantage of. And so I think you should go check it out. If you haven't already sign up, become uh, one of those people who step forward and say, I am not going to continue down the same path. If I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to keep getting what I'm getting. And you want something more. And, and I've been there. I've raised my hand. I've stepped forward. I have uh, reached out to people in my past when I needed to know what I, what I didn't know, right? How to, how to move forward. And so you can do that. Just go to Seven Figure Investor. I want to help you guys. I want to help you this year. We can get it done. Okay. <clears throat> As you know, I get questions throughout the week. People log on live on these on these live events and they ask questions. And so I start answering those here. And then once we get the live questions, I'll, I'll answer those and give them priority. Okay. So I have a list of questions that came through DMs and emails and, you know, Facebook and all, all kinds of different uh, um avenues. And so I'm going to start with those. And uh, hopefully uh, these questions are questions that have been bouncing around your head for a while and you have, you know, you need some answers too. So let's dive in. Okay. First question. I'm looking to sell a property that I previously house hacked, but I am now using as a rental property. My tenants are leased up until the end of February. And my agent says I 
it cannot be listed until the property is vacant to schedule showings. I'm curious as to how other investors handle selling properties that are leased. Do I wait until the lease expires to get the listing up and have it sit empty? Okay. Let's start at the top for people who don't know what house hacking is. House hacking is essentially, uh, you know, a house flipper is someone who buys a property, they don't live in it, they renovate it, and then they sell it. When you house hack, you buy the house to live in, right? So you can homestead that house. So you buy the house, you live in it, and you do the work to it while you're living there. And then you either rent it, sell it, make a, you know, you uh, refinance out of it and pull your money out, whatever. But the point is the renovations happen while you're living there. And usually a lot of times people do the work themselves when they house hack. So that's what a house hack is, number one. But the question that this person has is, if there's a tenant in the house and they want to sell it, their their uh, uh, their realtor is telling them uh, that they cannot list it until it's vacant. That is false. You can absolutely; it's your house. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, now, there's a difference between you know not telling your tenant that you're going to sell it, or maybe telling them you're not going to sell it, and telling them that people coming through are you know insurance adjusters or contra- you know and being being dishonest, right? And then selling it and then not telling them. You you probably should be straightforward with your tenants and say, listen, um, this thing is you know your your lease is up at the end of February. I'm going to sell the house. Uh, I want to show it. You know the 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 danger or the reason why I'm thinking the agent is advising you to wait is because maybe your tenants aren't taking great care. Maybe the house doesn't look great with all their stuff in it. And once they get all their stuff out, it'll show better and you'll make more. You're not telling me that. So maybe that's not what the agent is thinking, but they're wrong. You can show a house with tenants still under lease, like under, you know, they're still in their lease. You can, you can show it for sure. My, my, um, suggestion to you would be to get them out of the house when you show it. So maybe, you know, give them a little bit of money to go to the movies or to go to dinner or, you know, just have a conversation with them, a nice human to human conversation and say, Hey, I'm going to show this house. I'm going to sell it at the end of your lease. Um, would you mind leaving for a few hours while we show it and, and just have that conversation with them, but you can definitely, definitely show it with them in it. Now, the other side of that is, I kind of alluded to it, the reason why you might want to wait is because sometimes tenants can be overly talky when people are coming through a house and they can start um, oversharing and talking about features of the house that may need to be addressed um, that hopefully you're putting in disclosures and you're being honest about. But you know, a lot of times tenants are just they, they start having motor mouths and they just start talking about every leak or every creak in the stairs and every window that's drafty and, you know, and they, every faucet that drips at night, they're going to start telling them all these little dumb things that ultimately shouldn't make a huge difference, but it all sounds like all this negative stuff coming at the seller. So sometimes tenants can really hurt the sale. That's why I say, get them out of the house, have them totally gone. You know, maybe like I said, pay for their dinner, pay for a movie or something, get them out of the house and show it with without them in it, you know, without them physically being there. Um, but uh, I've I've shown houses that were that were leased that had tenants in them. I've sold them as a lease property where the person buying it wanted to keep it as a rental, and so I had that conversation with the tenant and just said, you know, 
your lease, you know, in a lot, in my case, the lease wasn't up at the end of the month, but you know, your lease goes through the end of September. They're not going to throw you out before the end of the lease. In fact, they can't do that. So, um, you know, don't worry about it. So you can have that conversation with them. I wouldn't surprise your tenants with showings and sales. Like I'd try to be upfront. Plus, you know, it's going to probably show up on Zillow and all these other places. So there's a good chance they'll find out you're selling it, even if you don't tell them. But your question was, can you show it with um, a tenant under and still within their lease period? Of course, you can definitely do that. And if your realtor just says, no, you can't, or just, you know, find a new realtor. Like, I hate to say it because realtors are a dime a dozen. Now, great realtors are not a dime a dozen, but realtors in general, someone who has their license and access to the MLS and can list properties, dime a dozen. It's very easy to get a realtor's license in most states, probably every state. So it's not like there isn't a thousand of them that are will be lined up to, le- to um, list your property. So if your realtor is telling you things like you can't show it, with a tenant still under lease, then find a new realtor or make them give you a better reason for not showing it with the tenant. They're like, hey, the tenants are slobs and this place looks awful. It's not going to show well. You're not going to get the right price or whatever, right? Have them, him or her give you a reason beyond it, that you just can't because you absolutely can't. You totally can. So um, yeah, I say don't, you don't want to sit empty too long, obviously, right? You're just burning through money at that point. But if it's really gross on the inside or really just not being maintained by the renter, maybe wait until they're gone so you can clean it out, freshen it up, open some windows, spray some Lysol and make it not seem bad. But if that's not the case and they're taking good care of it, have a conversation, ask them to be to leave during that time or pay for them to go do something. <clears throat> okay. Next question is from Mike Esrich. Uh, I, I'm told by investors, and he put this in quote, don't worry about money, just find the deals and the money will come. Is that a customary approach? Logic wants me to find logic wants me to have financing and funding in place before putting in the time for a lead. This is a really good question. And there was a there was a number of years where I argued uh, that you absolutely need to have your money lined up before you find the property. And there was a, f- a friend of mine, uh, still a friend of mine, but the uh, gentleman that I, uh, he had a podcast back then, his name was Justin Williams. And we'd be on each other's podcast. And he, uh, he posed this question. And I said, you need to find money first. You need to line up your money before you find the deal. And he's like, no, you don't. He, he literally kind of said what you just said here. Just find the deal and the money will come. You'll, you'll, you'll find the money. And I argued with them. But over time, and as I and he had more experience than me at the time, way more, way more flips under his belt, way more deals. And once I started doing more volume and my business grew and I got to be a little bit more experienced, he's right. Do not wait to line up money before you start generating leads and even you know making offers and signing contracts. Because the reality is, it's not that the money will just come. You can't. You can't get leads in, sign a contract with a seller, sit back, fold your arms and wait for the phone to ring with somebody who has money telling you they want to give it to you, obviously, right? And I'm being kind of silly, but I, hopefully you don't think that, right? But if you find a good deal, okay, here's, here's the key. A good deal will always get funded. A bad deal or a borderline deal may not get funded. You may end up losing out and having to cancel the contract. But good deals will always get funded. 
if you take a contract for any property that you got under contract and it's a really, really good deal, and you go to any local RIA and say, hey, I've got this under contract. Uh, I bought it for 100. ARV is 300. Is there anybody who wants to put up the money for this one? I, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to have people coming up to you saying, I want to fund that deal. But if they don't, there's something called hard money. Hard money is great because you don't have to have necessarily a lot of experience or any experience. You don't have to have a great credit score. You don't have to have a lot of money in the bank. You don't need really much of anything except a piece of paper, a purchase agreement that has a house under contract for significantly less than what it's worth and certainly significantly less than what it could be worth once it's renovated, right? The ARV. If you bring a really solid, rock solid, like the one I just said, I got it for 100. It needs 30,000, 40,000 renovation. It's going to be worth 300,000 once it's done. You bring that to any hard money lender and they will fund that deal for you. Okay. So that's what people mean when they say, just go find the deals and the money will come. Because the hard part in this business is finding really great deals, getting really great leads that generate really, really good, deeply discounted deals. That's the hard part, right? That's the part that's cons consistency. Doing that in a consistent way is difficult sometimes, okay? The money, there's so much money out there, way, way more money than your mind can even wrap around. Like it's, there's so much money out there. Somebody will fund your deal. A hard money lender, there's private money, meaning, you know, friends, family, network, people out there in the world who want to fund these deals for you. And, and they will fund them for you. And banks, for that matter. If you, have, if you currently have a W-2 job, you can go to a bank and get a, a traditional mortgage for these things. Right? There's so many ways to find money for deals. It's the leads and it's, it's finding a great deal that really is the struggle and the challenge for a lot of people. Like even like I do a lot of deals every year. We do an average over the last six years, we've done an average of about 100 deals a year. I still would rather be getting even better deals, right? So we're getting a lot of leads. We're getting a lot of deals. But if you ask me, do you need leads? I would say, yes, I want more leads and I want cheaper leads and I want deals that are even more discounted, right? So it's like this, it's like this, uh, this thing that never goes away. You always need leads and deals, even if you have enough, right? Or you have a lot, you want better quality money is always going to be there. I'm telling you, it's just going to be, there's somebody that will fund your deal. Now, if you get something under contract and you start showing it to hard money lenders and people who have private money and all this kind of stuff, and nobody wants to fund your deal, I got news for you. That is a bad deal. Or at best, it's borderline. It's marginal. Okay. And so if nobody wants to give you money for a deal, it's probably because you didn't buy it right. You didn't get it at the right price, or you've you've really missed on what it could be worth when it's renovated, your ARV is off. Okay. So always go and generate the deals because honestly, worst case scenario, you start generating leads and you get, you know, you get a deal and you just can't find the money for whatever reason. You again, my RIA example, you go back, you go to any RIA, any real estate meetup and say, I've got a contract. I've got a deal under contract for a hundred thousand. And I think it's worth 300,000 when it's done. Who wants to buy this deal from me? 
who wants to pay me to sign this contract over to them, assign it to them? How much, you know, who wants to do that? How much will you give me? It's called an assignment. It's wholesaling. It's what my company does the most of, right? We find great deals. We mark them up a little bit and we sell them off to house flippers and landlords, right? I don't need money to do that. I don't have to raise money to do that. So that's why you find, find the deals. You find a home run deal. You can either do it yourself, get the money, flip it yourself, or you can sell that contract to an investor who wants to flip it or make it a rental or whatever, right? Always, always generate leads, make offers, sign contracts. That's it. I'm telling you, that is, that's the magic formula. If you don't have money, assign it. If you raise the money, do whatever you're going to do yourself. Flip it, landlord, short-term rental, whatever, right? Do that. But please don't pause the lead generating activities to raise money, okay? Because you just don't need to do that. I, I really, truly believe that. And worst case scenario, if you have to walk away from a deal, like it's horrible, you don't want to do it. Like I get that but you're not going to jail. No one's going to kill you. Like it's not the end of the world. It's not ideal. And probably if you have to walk away from a good deal, shame on you. You should have sold it to, you know, you should have assigned it or, or found someone to partner with you who has money that wants to split the deal. Like there's a million ways you can get money. And, and if I sound animated, it's because I, I have, I have spent literally the last six years urging people to go out there and drive leads into their business generate deals, make offers, sign contracts. Let's go. Let's get this machine going. That's the machine that makes you money. Okay. Finding money for your deals. I'm telling you, it's not as hard as you're making it out to be. And it's something you need to think about for sure. Like, especially as your business starts ramping up, right? You're getting more and more leads, more and more deals. The money has to keep up. I get that. But again, there's always companies out there like hard money companies that want to lend you money. They have billions of dollars and all they need to see is, is this a really good deal? Is this going to make money? Is if I have to take this house from them because they don't make payments, like, are we screwed or are we going to make money? Okay. It all looks good. It looks like this is a moneymaker. Here's your money, right? That's how hard money works. They don't care about you. They don't care about your credit. They don't care about how old you are, how young you are, the color of your skin, your age, boy, girl. They don't care about any of that. They care about the deal. And if you bring them a good deal, they'll fund it. Case closed. So go find great deals. Okay, next question. Um, all right, this is from, uh, let's see. I don't know who it's from. I just started reading uh, Landlording on Autopilot. I don't think I've read that by Mike Butler and just read about having great tenants take over some cosmetic projects such as replacing carpet. In the book, the author states this allows tenant, the tenant to take ownership in their home and creates a better relationship between tenant and landlord. He explains that he has the tenant find the carpet they want and the installer, and then give the bill to the landlord to write the check. I'm just curious if you have ever tried this or what you think of the strategy. Um, I'm not a fan. I don't like it. I wouldn't do it for a, a number of reasons. Number one, this is still your house. Okay. Now, maybe in this scenario, you're also approving the color of the carpeting, the quality of the carpeting, you're approving and doing background checks on the installer. But at that point, you might as well do it yourself, right? Because a tenant isn't 
concerned necessarily about long-term quality. And maybe that's not fair, but that's my opinion. And <clears throat> they may pick a color that does not make any sense. And depending on when their lease is up or whether or not they move out or stop paying, you have to evict them. You're stuck with whatever carpet they pick. Uh, if they don't pick an installer that does great work, you could have problems there. The carpet could buckle. It could, you know, whatever. There could be some issues there. And then the last thing, and maybe this is a little bit of the wrong way of looking at it, but um, I've just dealt with a lot of tenants and I've had a lot of rentals over the years. Um, it's very possible they'll find someone to install it who they know, have a personal relationship with. And maybe that installer will inflate the cost of installation. And then perhaps your tenant will get some sort of a, piece of that installation money and they'll make a little money on the deal. Like I, it's probably not how you should look at it, but I'm just, you, I would not let that out of my control as the owner of the house. I want to control where the carpet's coming from. I want to be in contact with the installer and pay them directly, like all of those things. So it doesn't mean they can't have a hand in, in picking the colors and that kind of stuff. And if they're a long-term tenant and you know, there's no reason to think that they're not going to continue to rent from you. Yeah, I've gotten input from my tenants before and said, hey, I'm thinking about putting some carpeting in. This is what I'm thinking about using or maybe even giving them two or three options to pick from that I like all of them. Like, I think that's fine. But letting letting go of the control of some of that, I think is not necessarily a great idea. Um, I just wouldn't do it. I don't love it. I don't love it. I understand the point of what they're getting at, giving them some ownership, but I think there's ownership there. If they pick the carpeting, you know, you give them three swatches to pick from and they pick it and, and they have that kind of ownership, but I don't think I would just turn it over to them and say, just give me the bill at the end of the day. Just give me all the, give me all the invoices and I'll, I'll just take it off of your rent. Like, I don't think I would do that personally. I don't love it. So it's kind of a short answer, but not a big fan. I don't know the book either. So maybe, maybe it's a great book with great tips, but that tip I'm not a big fan of. Okay. Uh, third question. This might be maybe not the last one, but this is next question. I'm a new investor and have noticed that when I, when I contact agents regarding their listing, I'm unable to get them on the phone. Some will call me back a few hours later. And by that time, the property is already under contract or pending. I feel like I'm spending too much time analyzing deals and waiting to hear back from agents. Would it be better to submit offers via email? That way, at least a dialogue is beginning and I don't have to spend so much time analyzing deals. 100%. Yes, your instincts are correct. If you think you're spending too much time analyzing deals, I can almost certainly tell you you are. Uh, I had this conversation earlier with a friend of mine. The offer that you make is not... The, the first offer that you make for the house is not binding until everyone signs and countersigns, okay? And I'm not suggesting that you make offers that you know are, you're going to not follow through with, but get close with your analyzing a property, right? Get 80% there. Be 80% sure of what you're talking about in your numbers. Make the offer because you're right. It's going to start the dialogue. And the sooner you submit that, even by email, like make the offer, uh, they're, they're going to show it to their clients. Most likely, I think they have to show it to their clients, a realtor. And so you will get that dialogue and you'll at least get your foot in the door, right? Before it gets slammed closed. So I would not be waiting for realtors to call me back. I would be submitting offers to them via email. If you have their phone number, I would text them the offer and make sure that they got it and spend less time analyzing deals and, and take that extra time and make more offers, okay? It, making one offer, hyper-analyzing it, 
submitting, you know, or putting a call into a realtor and just waiting around for them to get back to you. And then the next day they get back to you or later that day and it's already gone. And now you have to start over again. I, my suggestion is cut your analyzing property time in half or in a fourth and make four or five times more offers. Make a lot of offers, submit them via email, text them, whatever. Get in front of that realtor fast, make more offers. You'll do more deals. If you wait and play this game where it's like, I'll make an offer or I'll analyze it. I'll reach out to the realtor to have a conversation before making off. You're always going to lose out. You're always going to miss out to the people who are doing what I do and what I'm telling you to do. Make the offer, be a lot more aggressive with offer making and getting it in front of them as fast as possible. If it's too low, they'll tell you it's too low. If it's something worth looking at, you know, you can start, like you said, you can start that dialogue. So get it going fast. Okay. I've got one more question here. Uh, maybe even more than one. Let's see. They're putting it in front of me. I'm going to look on the screen. All right. I'm just going to go for it. Angela, I know you're in the background listening to me. I'm going to read Corey's um, question. Okay. Corey Lawson. What's up, Corey, by the way? How are you, man? Uh, as a wholesaler, how do you handle a buyer who tried to circumvent you in a contract, in a contracted deal? Remove from buyer's list, have a conversation, both. I rain down hellfire on people who try to go around and take my deals. Like I don't screw around. I go absolutely nuclear. Uh, I, I would call them and I would tell them uh, literally if they don't back off immediately, then I will never sell them a property. Never. And if I even find out somebody's buying it for them or they're trying to get around me, like I'll cut them off. They're dead to me. I'm never going to talk to them again. And But I would say this, you need to have make sure that your relationships with your sellers are really, really strong. Have, have a really good, you know, you've got to dig in. You've got to You've got to create rapport. You've got to create a relationship. You have to make them feel good about you. And so that they won't go because a, a buyer can only go behind your back if the seller's willing to play, right? It takes two. And if the seller's willing to go behind your back too and sign another contract, like shame on you for not having a better relationship. Now, relationships are great. It's like trust, but verify. So not only should you really work on that rapport and that relationship with the seller. So you don't have to worry about that. You can also file what's called, um, I can't think what they're called, but you cloud the title, right? It's different in every state anyways. It doesn't matter. It's like, uh, it's not an NOI. That's yeah. NOI notice of intent or note of intent or something. Anyways, it's something you file with your purchase agreement with the, with the County and it clouds title so that even if someone goes behind your back, they can't buy the property because you have this this purchase agreement that's clouding title. And so they have to come to you before they can close. And you can, so you can stop that. But your question is, what do you do with that buyer? Do you call them? Do you cut them off? I would call them if they were somebody that I, I know, and they're not, you know, I, maybe they've purchased from me before or something. I might give them one strike, but I'm really, really strict on that. Like most times I would just tell them dead to me. Don't ever call me. Don't send me flowers. Like I will never sell a house to you. You could be the highest bidder by $50,000. I'll never sell to you. Congratulations. Short-term sighted, you just ruined your ability to get deals from me. And by the way, I'm the biggest wholesaler in town. So congratulations, you really screwed yourself. And, and that's it. Like I'm hardcore, right? But we don't have that happen to us. Like 
I don't want to like knock on wood, right? It just doesn't happen to us because we spend the time up front with the seller. We we file that notice of interest in the property with the purchase agreement when we think there's a chance that something could go sideways. And so we protect ourselves that way. We do have sellers that have called us and said, hey, uh, somebody who came and saw my house today with you guys, like you brought them to show them the house. They just reached out to me or they came back to the house after you guys left and knocked and, and they offered to buy it directly. And we've had them like, we've had sellers tell on people, right. And like rat them out and tell us, and then we really crush them. Right. My seller had to call me and tell me that you will be, you know, we, we go through the whole thing, man. We really like, we come down hard, like, Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. I don't ever want that to happen. We've had people like basically in tears, profusely apologizing, like just begging us to reconsider taking us off their list because they just think they're they're being you know really savvy, but it's short term. So we go to bat hard, uh, and if they really have some good sob story reason, we might give them another chance. But we're watching them close, and and but that relationship with the seller and then clouding title. Those are the things that are really going to keep it from happening. Cause people, people might even try, like maybe our sellers are just turning them away and saying, now we've already signed a contract. We also em- emphasize in addition to the rapport and making sure people, you know, really have that relationship. We do also emphasize that this is a legal, like binding contract. you once you sign this, you legally are obligated to sell to me unless for some reason we both decide to dissolve this contract. So, you know, we, we put that into their head too. So it doesn't seem like a real option for them, but you got to go at those guys hard. You cannot, you cannot let it go. Like you have to go at them pretty good. Okay. Um, next question uh, from, I think I'm saying it right. Need you, need you, need you, need you uh, Patel. Uh, Thank you for the question, by the way. Here's the question. Do you reduce your direct mail in certain months? For example, December, the beginning of January. No, we don't. We did. We tried that in the past. And what we found was that it it took us even longer after the first of the year to start getting leads and deals again. Um, There's a certain momentum to direct mail. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure it can be explained to an extent, but I swear there's something about it that's hard to really explain or quantify. But direct mail has, it has momentum. And when you stop it, it takes a while to get that again. So when we did that, we stopped doing direct mail in December. Our thought, actually, we started, we stopped doing direct mail right after Thanksgiving because we thought our numbers go down. Like it isn't great. We don't usually have a great end of November and December. And so let's just stop mailing. Now, this was like five or six, four or five years ago, we did this. What we found was instead of our business starting to crank back up in like mid to late January, it took until into February mid to late February before our business really got back on track. And so, yeah, you may not get as many deals in in December, but what I think happens is people still get the cards, they get the letters. They're not going to do anything. Maybe they might want to, maybe they're thinking about it. It's the holidays. They don't want to be moving. They plop it on their, on the refrigerator. You know, they put it somewhere, they put it in a drawer. So I found that it just takes longer to get on track when we stop our mail in December or January and and so we don't anymore. We just we just plow right through. Um, 
Good. Corey, I just saw you just responded that your seller told uh, the guy to pound sand. Good. This is a good, good on you. Good, good for you for making a relationship where the seller was uh, willing to do that. Right. That doesn't always happen. That tells me you did a great job um, with the seller, with the rapport, with that relationship. So that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah. A daisy chain wholesaler. They're the worst, honestly. They're like, they're the worst. I, I really don't like those guys. Okay. Uh, that is all the questions I have for tonight. I'm going to let you guys go. It's been about a half an hour. I think that's awesome. Uh, once again, thanks guys, Corey and uh, need you, everybody who came on to this live. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the questions guys send them in throughout the week. If you want, if you can't make these lives, I also replay them on my podcast, just start real estate every Thursday. So if you go to just start real estate, Monday is a really fantastic interview with a fantastic investor. You will learn tons if you listen to those episodes on Monday. But on Thursday, I do the replay of these. So if you miss any one of these, you can always, you can check it out here on the page, honestly, on Facebook, or you can go to Just Start Real Estate, wherever you listen to podcasts and you can check it out there. Guys, we're here every week, Wednesdays, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Go check out my program, Seven Figure Investor. I want to help you build your business to a seven-figure business and beyond in the next 12 months. Let's do that together. Go check it out, sevenfigureinvestor.com. We'll see you guys next week. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.